Welcome to the DNA Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Pugh, and joining with me today is the wonderful, the amazing, the impeccable, the adorable Miss Sarah Jones. She's going to be filling in for David because he had adulting things to do, so that's always fun. Uh, Miss Sarah, how are you doing today? I am doing quite well. I am so glad that you welcomed me back for this awesome episode today. Yeah. I really appreciate it. We have Pretty a special excited. episode tonight. We have a fun episode. Um, and I'm going to do my hardest not to fanboy here. I really, really am because this is just screaming inner child so hard over here. You have no idea. Um, we have a paleontologist on the show. We have a gentleman, Dr. Brian Curtis, who has come on to the show today. And he is going to be talking to us about dinosaurs. He's going to be talking to us about this really great and just I'm 10 year old, 15 year old me is super jealous right now. Uh, product called Fossil Crates. Uh, and so we're going to get into that a little bit. And I have a ton of questions for him. Uh, so without further ado, let's get right into this. Actually, before we get in right to Dr. Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. Let's let's start with that. Thank you for having me. I've been listening to your podcast and, and uh, I think I'm going to fit right in. The conversations I... <laughs> that you all have are great. Right up my alley. Yes, yes. Uh, we talked a little bit before this, too. Uh, you're a D&D nerd. I am indeed. First, second, and fifth edition, actual DMing and playing. And then um, third and fourth, I just read to see uh, the rules changes and cool miniatures. That's awesome. All right. So I got to know now, because you're a paleontologist, do you choose like the more reptile lizard folk and everything races uh, as your characters to play? Or do you try to stick away from the more exotic dinosaur based or looking races? Uh, typically, I'm I'm a race agnostic. Whatever's going to help my wizard <laughs> out, whatever spell casting, I'm always I, I'm always of the mage persuasion. So okay, something along those lines. Um, so yeah, uh, and typically I'm the DM though, which uh, it's been that way since I was seven. I'm I'm rarely the get forever to play. DM. Oh Pardon? well, you're the forever DM. Seemingly so. I mean, I've <laughs> I've offered, but you know, they're like, yeah, you do a fine job at it. You you. You keep, you go. Well, that being said, we will have to definitely do a virtual game where I get a bunch of people and you can play whatever character you want. We'll make sure you get taken care of over there. All right. Help <laughs> <laughs> me in. Miss um, Sarah, what? Oh, oh, before I get into what have you been up to, I need to do this because, ladies and gentlemen, this is my own fault and I am ashamed of myself and I'm disappointed in myself and I will make sure to punish myself. I'm grounded for two weeks, no ice cream. Uh, I have not once on my episodes for March said happy uh, Women's Appreciation Month. And unfortunately, this episode is not going to air in time, but I believe March 8th is Women's International Women's Appreciation Day. Sure I did an episode is. on it last time. And I made sure to have a bunch of people. I will be doing an episode. Unfortunately, it's going to just show up later in the month. But I want it to be noted. And thank you so much for being the amazing person that you are, Miss Sarah. You are also a veteran. And I have to say thank you for your service and everything you've done for this country. And you are a teacher. So I had to give you even more credit. I mean, man, <laughs> your ego should be like way boosted by the time like you get done with this episode. Like your husband's not even be in the same room as you, you know? Uh, Thank you for everything. <laughs> it is my pleasure. Um, so what have you been up to? Um, well, honestly, we're kind of getting down to the nitty gritty with teaching. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's spring breaks right around the corner. And after spring break, usually comes standardized testing. So mm -hmm. we're kind of gearing up for that end of the year stuff. Um, 
as far as cosplay life goes, you know, trying to finish my Ahsoka still, still haven't finished her. Um, got a couple of troops lined up, went ahead and got Megacon lined up for May. Nice. Um, excuse my scratchy voice, you know, teach your voice. <laughs> it's okay. And as far as family goes, you know, just trying to take it easy. Beach days are coming fast. So we're ready so to get jealous. back onto the beach. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Um, actually, by the time this episode airs, I think it should be good. I've been trying my hardest not to announce it to like, because I know my son listens to these episodes. I'm actually going mm-hmm. to be, we're going down to Disney uh, in September, just at the end when well, uh, Spook. I'm the three Lubash. hours south of you. So just, just come visit. <laughs> done um we're gonna be there right when boobash starts i don't know if we're gonna be able to go but i'm excited that would be a lot of fun yes uh but we did not come here to talk about disney we did not come here to talk about boobash we came to here to talk about dinosaurs uh and we would be wasting a great resource if we didn't start talking to him so brian welcome to the show good sir thank you kindly it's great to be here so before we get into fossil crate and before we get into dinosaurs and paleontology, let's talk about you. So tell us about yourself, good sir. Um, how, how did you get into paleontology? <laughs> so from the, as a fetus is what I will tell people. <laughs> I can't recall a time in my life where dinosaurs weren't involved in some capacity. And as a wee lad, my uh, parents took me to visit my grandparents who lived in San Jose. And we snuck away over for a day and checked out the California Academy of Sciences. And I looked down in this gigantic pit and saw an articulated theropod and I was blown away. Fast forward to 2016, I went back and that gigantic pit was a few feet deep and it was a very different perspective <laughs> now knowing exactly what I was looking at, but I was still happy to, to say the pit was still there. I had told people the story for years and like, there's no giant pit. Well, they were kind of right. There was in my mind a giant pit, uh, 3D6 when I fell into it. So the, <laughs> but the dinosaurs as a young lad, I was that kid who was always talking about them, always correcting them. Um, I was mad in second grade when uh, Mrs. Schaefer threw out, we're going to do dinosaurs. Yeah, it was, it was math sheets with pictures of dinosaurs on them. That was like, oh, come on. So too often these animals are used as, uh, as carrots to have people eating bad food at times, dry food, not bad, just dry food. And they think it'll sweeten it up. So as I went through under uh, through elementary school, then middle school, um, I really enjoyed the sciences and uh, kept coming back to paleontology. And then uh, I was the first one in my family to go to college. So we, we grew up very poor and I thought all colleges were the same. I thought I was gonna walk into Arizona State University and study dinosaurs. So very first class, first day front row, I'm all excited. And uh, Dr. Morris looked at me and afterwards, I was like, how, where do I study dinosaurs? And he just kind of laughed and said, there's no dinosaurs at this campus. What, what are you talking about? So I uh, did an undergrad in physical anthropology because it was the closest I could get to the bones. It put me out in the field that let me get act aspects of uh, paleo and anthro. There's a lot of overlap in, uh, in some areas. And then uh, we did a graduate program, a master's in geology at the largest unstudied dinosaur collection in the world at the time. And that was in, of all places, as a non-religious person, Provo, Provo, Utah, Brigham Young University. So it turns out they had this 
the football stadium, the Cougar Stadium, went into the other, front to back, side to side, and there's a famous picture of it in Luisa Hoyas' Hunting Dinosaurs book, was full of unopened jackets because Dinosaur Jim Jensen had spent nine months a year for 30 some years collecting dinosaurs and they didn't have the resources to prepare them all. So you give an opportunity to a guy like me and it was a, a match made in heaven. So I was there 23 months, loved it. It was an absolutely great experience. Bounced off to my first PhD work, which was in anatomical sciences, went to Africa. So I studied sauropods. So the long necked long-tailed, heavy-bodied terrestrial tetrapods, aka Brontosaurus. <laughs> so the, uh, which I still call Apatosaurus. If you look into shop 2015, he uses 15 characters, but 12 of them or so are inferred. I don't like inferred characters. I take umbrage to it, but that's, that's the minutia we battle in paleo day to day. I'm, so, I'm on that boat with you. I, I still say it's a patasaur. It's, it's nomenclatorial priority. I mean, what, what can we do? It's Linnaeus, go blame him. <laughs> so the punchline of it is I've always had dinosaurs around me. And then um, dinosaurs have been something that have allowed me to travel the world. I, chase, I, I used to joke, I chase tail because I study the tails <laughs> of dinosaurs. So I've chased tail on six continents. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Didn't always play well in Utah. That wasn't the greatest opening <laughs> no. time. I can't imagine why. No. <laughs> but the reason I chose sauropod tails is sauropods have between 50 and 80 tailbones. Most of the tailbones are built like bricks, very solid items. There's a large number of them. There were lots of, of sauropods. And if you, they have 10 to 12 backbones, maybe 15, and 10 to 15 neck bones. So, and those are very fragile in comparison. So the likelihood of you finding an element, it's gonna be the tail. So I started from the very beginning, learning to identify sauropod dinosaurs based on their tail, because that's what you find the most of. And there turns out to be a tremendous amount of phylogenetic pulse or signal within the tail of sauropods, most of them, that allow you to get to genus level really quickly. So that's a big delight. Wow. And so I super I interesting. Stayed with dinosaurs. And so I, I in some ways I joke I'm a stamp collector. I'm the alpha taxonomist. You bring me the bone, like what dinosaur did this belong to? That's I, I'm not as concerned about biostratigraphic questions, biogeography, functional morphology. These are things that interest me, but I find you know third, fourth, fifth co-author would be just fine with me. But if you hand me a cylindrical bone and say, what is it? Uh, I, I used to joke, I could tell you any bone in the Morrison in less than five minutes what it belonged to if it was in the tail. And then I went to Switzerland in 2000 and, and the Sieber brothers had excavated a lot of sauropod material from the United States. And I told them on the phone, which was an expensive phone call back then, geez, remember long distance and <laughs> yes. uh, what, 888, you dialed some special numbers to get discounted <laughs> rates, throwback machine there. So I went up, I showed up and 30 minutes later, I've got sweat pouring off my brow. I was absolutely flummoxed and I handed it back to him and said, this is a new genus. And uh, fast forward to around 2014 or so when they named it uh, a new animal. So it was good to see I was right, but I didn't have the time to, you know, with my schedule to keep flying back to Switzerland and help them describe it. But a lot of cool animals out there uh, all over the world. I try, now I, with fossil crates, I go and look at not just sauropods, which, uh, the popcorn eater in me just loves because I get to watch <laughs> the Spinosaurus. Was it an aquatic pursuit predator or not? Uh, now with T-Rex, is it three species or is it one? 
and I don't have an emotional investment in this. I can just be an objective side side citizen and just say, huh, we're going to advance the science as they volley back and forth. That's so exciting. And yes, we did. And now, Sarah, just so you know, uh, Brian and I did kind of geek out a little bit beforehand and we did break down these like, yeah, the three versions. And I went, oh, the Ingress, the Rex, and, you know, just getting into it. And like, oh, it was so much fun. Uh, yeah. And it, the, 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 the dinosaur guy in me right now is having a field day. Cause like when you're talking about your stories about how you used to get annoyed about the teachers using the dinosaurs and you having to correct people, I'm having all these flashback memories of when like my mom was trying to get me to eat chicken nuggets and she goes, it's stegosaurus meat and everything. And I'm like, ma, there hasn't been a dinosaur on this planet for 65 million years. There's no way you're telling me that's good meat right there. And just like those fun little memories are a blast chickens are dinosaurs so who knew <laughs> that's true back yeah back in like 86 you know 87 time frame early 90s yeah yeah no that wasn't really too much of a thing on our side no not at um, all there, in fact that is a great you know i'm gonna jump all around you go ahead that. this is what we do welcome to dad yeah, really so i've been around long enough to have watched what killed the dinosaurs and Walter Alvarez came out from the astronomy fields and says, well, it was this big hole in the ground from a meteorite and this iridium layer. And the paleontologists fought vociferously and vehemently were opposed. And I think in large part, it was the fact that someone from another discipline just waltzed in and solved it overnight. I'm <laughs> trivializing the work he put yeah. into it. And we couldn't accept it. And that was quite interesting to me as a young student coming through watching science and watching the hardliners refuse and, and just do everything in their power to prove them wrong. But ultimately, all that did was made the evidence that much stronger. Is, Any weak parts fell away. Is that the one in the Gulf of Mexico? Yeah, the Chicxulub crater. Yes. And uh, when that was proposed, no, it was the Jacan traps in India. It was pollen. It was mammals eating all the dinosaur eggs. It was temperature change. Uh, it was the Earth that went through one degree tilted up or down from the galactic ecliptic plane and therefore it's ultra cosmic radiation. I mean, I would sit in these talks, these professional talks, and the folks were trying so hard why it couldn't be. Well, the, the impacts dust cloud doesn't account for why amphibians made it through. Why did certain groups make it and others didn't? And um, now it's accepted as canon, in fact. But if you rewind the clock to the 90s, this was a hot button of, of dispute. And then fast forward to our our birds dinosaurs. So there was a, a, the, a very vocal minority, but they were, they were well-heeled, credentialed, and busy beavers for publishing. And they fought to the bitter end that dinosaurs did not become birds, that birds came from a different lineage. And that the fe or then they would switch to okay, pterosaurs have feathers too, and therefore dinosaurs and pterosaurs have feathers, and feathers must be earlier. They would try all kinds of different legal machinations in an attempt to dissuade people from seeing that the many raptorans, this gentle animal behind me, gave rise to the birds that we know today. So I've watched this this cycle of new idea comes from somewhere else. It gets introduced, it's ridiculed, it's mocked, it's derided, it's attacked, it's beaten viciously. And then if it's true, the upside of science <laughs> is if, if, it could, if the people are, are convinced they're right and can stay the course, 
it'll come out with, okay, that turns out to be right. And I think with uh, Spinosaurus being announced as this fully aquatic dinosaur, and then Hone and Holtz came out in 2020 with this really great accessible to the masses paper that explained why it's not an aquatic otter. It's not this 50 foot long sea otter hunting down things. <laughs> they viewed it as it's a giant stork or a heron and they use extant taxa to, to help bolster their argument. Now I'm waiting for the Spinosaurus crew to come back with the limb and say, nope, this is why it was super swimmy. And this battle will go back and forth until we finally get to a general understanding. And then the last one, you mentioned the T-Rex and the three species. That one uh, will be one that I can't wait for the next 18 months of publications because there is going to be so much vitriol and rancor just pouring out at those three folks who proposed this. But, and I'll go on record, for years I've wondered why T-Rex is only one species. Why does it get massive, uh, a range of variation and things that just don't make, they don't pass my sniff test, but I always caveat that with, I'm a sauropod guy. I am not a theropod specialist. So they may very well be right, but it's usually these outsiders, and Greg Paul is a paleo artist, self-taught, no degree, who proposed this. So it's an outsider coming in, making a statement that will immediately be reviled, but the next generation of paleontologists will come up with a much clearer view and an opener mind, and they'll start picking it apart. And I think he's gonna be shown right for the wrong reasons. Which it's you truly can fascinating. For a lot of dinosaurs. That's... Utah Raptor is my favorite. I love Jim Perklin. He named Utah Raptor off five characters. Every one of them was wrong. So, like, okay. <laughs> now, the reasons make sense. They had a body. Take, take 20 puzzles of 20 different skeletons, dump them in the middle of a room, and let them sit for 120 million years. So, most of the pieces blow away. And now try to figure out what the animal was with no modern, with nothing to compare it to. It's a Sisyphusian task. And you always feel bad for the guys that have to name these dinosaurs from bone beds that are disarticulated because they're just doing their best guess. But by putting a tent, a, a tent pole, <coughs> excuse me, now we can start to go and use science and piece it apart. And if they're right on the front end, then it's just the details that people like me squabble over. No, the super lamina should bifurcate. It should not be a single pole all the way up. And those are the things we squabble on. But for the general masses, it's Utah Raptor is a legitimate animal. Some of the nuances were off, but it is a real solid creature. That's awesome. Uh, I cool. love this little tangent we just went on. That was so much fun. Uh, but before we get in too much more into the paleontology side, I want to promote what you have brought. And I, and I discovered this on uh, Facebook. And I thought this was the neatest thing in the entire world. Yes, there it is, a fossil crates. These things are so cool. And, and I, I try not to pitch items on my show because unless I truly think there's something amazing. And this is something that I wish I had as a kid. I am envious of my son, but I'm also excited as an adult because now I have adult money, but I also had married money. So it's not so much adult money, it's wife money. And then I had to ask wife for money. But I won't tell if you won't. This exists because of those words you just said. As an adult, I wish I had this as a kid. And so in the field, we use burlap to wrap bones in. And we put them in, in the old, old days, we use this kind of shredded wheat, if you will, this, this shredded wood. And so we said, well, hey, COVID shut our museum down, the Arizona Museum of Natural History. 
If you come to Arizona, you come to Phoenix, definitely you have to see it. It's a very cool museum. And it was closed for 18 months almost. It was crazy closed long and we didn't have anything to do. So we created fossil crates. So we take, so you open it and here is, for instance, a Spinosaurus. We put it in a plastic bag because we don't want, if, if you're a little kid taking it to your friend's house, you don't want the paint to rub off as you take it over. So we bag them. Then we include information in them. So, you know, little info cards that I wrote of the latest. And I've had to reprint Spinosaurus a couple times because we keep finding new stuff on it. But really, this is what they're here for. Um, see if I can get this to sync. It's it's okay. I, what I see is is enough to make me absolutely jealous. That is so so cool. Then, because of who I am, I like art. Big fan. So we've commissioned a number of artists. So then we go and we create fact sheets. Uh, let's see if we can get this to work. <laughs> Green screens are a blast. <laughs> yeah, I can disable it. But then we have you know art. So we include a ton of artwork. Like this is the Spinosaurus versus T Rex. So we oh have God, art so that beautiful. is unique. And um, we sell scaled skulls as well. So this skull, the T-Rex skull and the Spinosaurus skull, we took laser scans, shrunk them, and then we scanned the whole specimen. And then uh, we shrunk them to one seventh or one eighth size. And uh, that's uh, one of the other offerings we have. But not everybody wants to buy a whole crate. So cool. So let's say you just want a T-Rex cast. These are all casts of real material. Uh, if it's a sculpt, which like, Megalosaurus jaw, as we call it out. Like you can see, these are research grade. These are carinae here. These are the serrations. So you've got on this, and here's the other serrations here. The T-Rex tooth is famous for a killer banana because as it bites into you, it has two serrated steak knives to help make sure the wound is jagged when, when the mouth releases and takes up a giant chunk of flesh. So. I, before I, I want to go back to fossil crate, but there's something I have to ask because I had heard about it and I was curious um, that uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex's bite wasn't what killed whatever it was hunting or eating. It was the neck muscles because of how its neck and head were connected. It had a powerful neck and would use that to kind of jerk. So I think I can illustrate that. We were just at a school and uh, I don't know if it all got packed to the appropriate spots, but here we go. So here's a tooth. So this is the tooth section, the shiny part, and this is all the root. So this root is up in that jaw and the shape of these is such that it's designed to crunch bone and the power, the tooth is shaped so as the power rips through from these jaws, it doesn't shatter the tooth. That's a real problem. You can shatter a tooth. So the, the, the forces are dissipated through this gigantic root going up into the jaw. Uppers and lowers have equally ridiculously long roots. And the power of the bite, what killed you was blood loss and flesh loss because it bites <laughs> three or 400 pounds of flesh in one chomp. Oh and God. those, but, but it had... If you look at the bottom of a T-Rex and I, oh. They have such huge jaws, I have a Spinosaurus jaw, the Spinosaurus here, but it'll duplicate. Spinosaurus's jaw is long, but up in here on a T-Rex, this whole area is lots of bone, not so much holes. And this part of the jaw is really thick on a T-Rex. It's not thin. And all of that means these muscles, and you can rotate through these holes here, 
This is where some of the muscles go through. The holes in the T-Rex are gigantic. You put your head in them, basically. And that's because it had massive jaw power. And so when a T-Rex bit, it didn't need to have big arms. It didn't even have arms at all, really. If you fast forward evolution, I wouldn't be surprised if T-Rex's arms go the way of the Bellasaur arms, like Majungasaurus, and just get tinier and tinier. Uh, because it's got this meat missile that just hunts down, grabs, it was fast, it was maneuverable with that long counterbalancing tail, and it had binocular vision. So once it locked onto you, you weren't going to, unless you could outrun it, you weren't going to shake it really easy because it was reasonably maneuverable. The animal was the ultimate killing machine. And uh, it's incredible to see that the power that it generates with that jaw. So it's the most, it's the most powerful dinosaur bite. Now, Carcharodontosaurus, especially Giganotosaurus, I went to Argentina and checked it out. Awesome specimen. But Giganotosaurus itself, its skull is a, it's a, it's more lightly built than it. It's still a strong skull, but it's, it's different. It's, it's eating different prey. T-Rex had to bite through ankylosaur armor, ceratopsian skulls. It had to deal with some pretty tough ombres as comparison to Giganotosaurus, where it had some sauropods, which, you know, almost like walking meat lockers, go chunk <laughs> off and bite, take a bite and go. So and Spinosaurus had a really long skull, super long, but it's built like a croc, like a gharial or a porpoise. It's got a long snout, simple conical teeth designed to quickly snap. That long lever lets it close its mouth quick. The simple conical teeth puncture a fish, stick swivels, and then it just knocks it back. That's awesome. So, do, do all these facts come? So I'm assuming some so of this information comes some in. Some of this information is absolutely loaded into the info sheet. And which then, is um, it's a great segue to get to you guys. So if they want yes. to know more, this is how we get more information. And a person like me and any any dinosaur, even remotely, like someone who's interested, is going to come to you to seek in more information. Because if you're the product you have there, it, it's museum quality. It's absolutely gorgeous. And I'm I, I'm getting giddy over here. I people can't see it, but I have the biggest grin on my face, and I'm absolutely loving life right now. It's it is neat. It is cool. And I know if I get this thing, I'm going to want to find out more information. I'm going to want to seek out more, and I'm probably going to want to add more to my collection based off of what I see there. Absolutely. And we're always giving like we try to have a crate every two months, so mm -hmm. we'll come back to the next new crate. But you find us at Fossil Crates plural fossilcrates.com uh every pretty much every day on instagram i post a photo from a museum skeleton usually and then i put instagram doesn't let me write enough i'm not on twitter much because the character <laughs> limits too tiny i didn't I know that know. was an issue <laughs> yeah, no, apparently no one does i hit the bottom every single time i have to edit my post it's terrible oh, i just sit awesome. back and I open my brain, I'm like, what do I know about this animal? And then in 15 minutes of typing, I've, I've vomited all the info I know. I go cross check it with the resources. I often put like an 1883 journal link that you would never find or even think to look for, just in case you're on a computer and want to look at it. So there, my Instagram or, and Facebook are research quality posts, if you will, as well. But our information's research. We have a YouTube channel, which we're uh, still tinkering with. We've got, what, 200 videos on there of all different sorts. Uh, the recent T-Rex one we did, we, I, I try to bring on experts like Tracy Ford, a T-Rex guy, but that leads us to our other product. If you buy our product and you enjoy it, you're going to, you, you may buy more, but we also offer twice a week or twice a month live paleontologist conversations at our paleo portals 
also plural, paleoportals.com. And uh, Paleo Portals, it's a $10 a monthly subscription fee. First month's free. Mm-hmm. Try it out. And what you get is like this week, this Saturday, I have Ben Berger coming on. Uh, Dr. Berger is a paleontologist out of Utah. I've had Dave Krause. Um, I've had Matt LaManna from the Carnegie Museum. Um, Andy Farkey. I've had a, a whole bunch of PhDs, but I don't always do PhDs. Um, I, in almost a month, Kate Parsons, she's a, a collections manager and field expert of dinosaurs who's completing her undergraduate. We have, I bring on undergrads, graduate students, postdocs, paleo artists. I've had some amazing paleo artist sessions. Um, Daniel, Daniel Barrera Guevara was an incredible guest who had an amazing Mexico dinosaur presentation that I'm still giddy over. So I go find people I want to talk to and geek out with, and I bring them on the show. And because I go to museums all over the world, like we have this unnamed mega raptor claw that you can't get anywhere else. But I was down in Argentina. I thought it was awesome. We worked to deal with them. And the deal is 10% of all the sales that we make, they go back to the museums. Because I'm not trying to buy a house on the hill, just want to pay my bills, but I want to share my love of paleo. And I want to make sure that museums get a source of renewable revenue that they otherwise don't have. Because you as the public don't even get to see how many neat specimens are in the back of a collection. And it's really unfortunate, but they're that back there because space is limited for one. Two, it's a security risk if you trundle out. T-Rex are selling for $10,000 an inch at the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show. So if you have, it's just a six inch T-Rex tooth, that's $60,000, you run the risk of theft down. So wow. they, they don't put them all on display, but I can at least go help them by making legit research grade casts. Here is if you watch Camp Cretaceous, this is a, a skew of an ankylosaurus. So bumpy, bumpy. protagonist. <laughs> but we went, and, we went and found one of these and said, hey, let's go ahead and uh, let's put this out there. It's been a really popular seller. I couldn't figure out why. And then I found Camp Cretaceous. Says, oh, but Bumpy's <laughs> licensed. I didn't want to take any chances. Yeah, no, that's all good. No, it's, it's, I, as soon as you said Camp Cretaceous, I was like, oh my gosh, please tell me they did Bumpy. Dude, That my son's going to be giddy about that. But I think that's cool. That, and I was going to ask you that question was like, how does purchasing one of these fossil crates help the community? And you're already proven that point that because this is going to the museums, this is going to education, this is going to helping inspire and help gravitate the imaginations of children. And they get not, we live in a virtual world. We have to accept the inevitability that this is a world of technology and you're giving a product that is so cool. It is history. It is our past, it is these creatures that don't exist anymore. Well, and you know, to an extent, uh, and you're putting it in our hands to where not only do we get to go to a museum and appreciate them, you also get to appreciate them in your hand, in your home and physically hold these things and just let your imagination just explode. I love that. Our taglines bring the museum home because why not? You can't touch them usually when you're at the museum, but I can, and I'm gonna make sure you can. And the reality is I wanna do a Pepsi challenge. Can you tell me which of these is the original fossil? Because we do such a good job and ours are solid polyresin. So, so many of these inexpensive casts, they're they're made of just blown plastic injection and they're hollow, the the paint jobs are come off right away. But our items, the downside is they're not inexpensive Mm -hmm. because 
it is a massive amount of labor to create these. Everything is done by hand. So the mold was made. First, you gotta find it or find it in a collection, work through all the paperwork. We make the mold, then you make the cast, then you have to trim the cast, then you gotta paint the cast, gotta set it aside. I have to go to the research. We gotta assemble all the products. It, it is nothing, there is no way to automate this. We've, we've actually looked into, can we do some kind of higher end automation? And the reality is, we want that, uh, that that real feel. So we've got the specimen that our artist is looking at and is painting based off of the specimen that's next to the actual cast that they're painting. So, so you're putting that TLC in there to make sure you're given a high quality product. Absolutely. And my cell phone number's on the website. So someone has an issue, problem, question, uh, email, but you know, I, I, yeah. I answer the phone. So Sarah, let me ask you this. From a teacher's point of view, what is going through your mind about this product right now? kind of in love with it <laughs> and honestly like I teach third grade so we are just beginning at the end of third grade year to start getting students into what we call dbqs which is document-based questioning and so we're teaching these kids to look at real life documentation um you know things that like we were doing the constitution a few weeks ago so the kids get to look at the documents of the Constitution. They get to look at who signed the Constitution. So it's teaching them to look at those things and kind of further question. And I'm thinking that this would be perfect for a science DBQ. <laughs> and, and, and not even at third grade either, like no, throughout I mean, education yeah, system. I mean, you could actually, they're starting at our school um, to start some DBQ questioning. Very, very mild, very low level you know, questioning in first and second grade already. So teaching those kids to build their own questioning abilities, to ask the deeper questions, to think a little bit higher level thinking. Um, so this is really kind of cool. I think the fourth and fifth graders would even really enjoy it. Sixth and seventh and eighth graders would enjoy it too. There's a little bit of dinosaur loving kid, I think, in almost every child I have ever taught, <laughs> even the girls. <laughs> And the girls, and the girls always like the vicious ones. I don't know what's up with that. So um, we've talked about making we 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 have a, a line in our we educates. So okay. the teachers don't necessarily need they they would love to have, but all the all the artwork because artwork's not inexpensive because we want to make sure that we do high quality across the board. Right. And um, do we do things like worksheets? So here's an example of functional Ooh. morphology, comparative anatomy. This is a T-Rex hand claw. This, oh is, gosh. this is a 43 foot long, 16,000 pound animal. This is a 20 foot long Allosaurus hand claw. Both are the same claw, but you can see very different, sharp attenuated point, much longer. This is functional morphology and comparative anatomy at its best. And we think that something like that, if we could figure out how to get teachers interested in it, um, in terms of how do we market and sell uh, an educate that talks about, so we have a velociraptor claw, which I don't have here, but we have a tiny velociraptor claw, then you've got much larger hand claws of these other animals, um, teeth, we have triceratops tooth, we have an, a duck mill dinosaur tooth, we have the other side, we have all kinds of meat eaters teeth, and the meat eaters oh, teeth so tell us right away they're eating different prey. So right. we're wondering, and then do we need to paint them? And we love to paint, but do we offer them unpainted knowing that the paint's going to ultimately scrape off by the little hands playing with right. it over the year? Yeah. Do, we, do we give some kind of just generic white, still solid poly resin that's not going to shatter right. drop it and right. include with it 
some functional morphology questions to help the teachers out saying, hey, this is what me, I'd write them. This is the things when I look at it, when you hand me a bone that I don't know the provenance of, I'm going to ask you, well, when was it found in time? Where was it found geologically? Those are the very first two questions I'm going to ask. Then I'm going to start to right. go through a checklist. Is it an herbivore or a carnivore? What am I looking at? Uh, could it be a juvenile if it's a vertebra or does it have neurocentral suture fusion? If so, it's an adult. If not, it's, it's a juvenile. So as we go up through the grades, we can add more and more criteria yes. to individual. Much more depth to that questioning yeah. order. Just awesome. Chef's kiss every time. This is, <laughs> I love this. I, 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 I interrupted you, Sarah. I'm so sorry, but it just. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm glad that you added to that because I, I feel like our ideas are kind of going in the same direction. Like the, those data-based data and document-based questionings. And, and our, our main goal is to give those kids those higher order thinking skills. That is our goal here. So we're trying to teach them how to do that on their own. And this would definitely help them to kind of investigate and be more hands-on with that type of learning. And we're not just dinosaurs. We've been, we have Smilodon, we have a pair of Smilodon teeth. We have a Megalonyx hand claw, which is actually one of my very favorite items. Uh, we've got a mammoth tooth. So we've got additional items that aren't dinosaurs. And this year, we'll talk about it right now. For April, our yes. new crate, worldwide announcement here, is going to be a brand new dinosaur egg that was found in Alabama in the 1970s. And it is at the bottom of this egg is a, an embryonic ornithomimid, a bird mimic dinosaur, one of the meat eaters that lack teeth, like a Struthiomimus or an ornithomimus. And it's never been cast before. In fact, I don't understand why this thing has not received iconic status based on how awesome it is. It was found in the 70s on the top of a hoodoo. So there was a, a, a funny looking rock on top of a pillar. Kid climbed up, pulled it off, realized it was an egg, wasn't really sure much more beyond that. Took it home, sat on it for a while, took it to the museum. Museum looks at it. They realize, yeah, it's a dinosaur egg. They start prepping it. They find dinosaur baby bones at the bottom. Uh, they send it to France, into the synchrotron. So they got this beautiful 3D scan of it. And it's currently being studied, but it's been being studied for almost two decades. So I don't know when the paper's going to ever come out on it. It's, it's in the eastern side. It's in, the, it's in Alabama. So one of the other cool things is the Western Interior Seaway from around 60 million years to 100 million years, the United States was bifurcated. It was bisected by a giant ocean. So Kansas was underwater, which is why they have all these cool sea creatures there. And um, this was on the Eastern side, which is a rare find. There's not many dinosaurs in the Eastern United States uh, because of some quirks of geology. But this is our new, our new specimen. We're gonna sell it individually. So you're gonna be able to buy this. We call it Mimi for Ornithomimid. <laughs> So that's its name. I love it. That's and, um, adorable. We don't know if it's a male or female, but we figure Mimi's cute. So yeah. Uh, and then we're gonna and kids it. will love it. I, I'm hoping so. I'm hoping adults love it too. I, 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 yeah, I do. So, <laughs> I showed it to my buddy who who helped me get the rights to, to cast it. And um, he says, I want one. I'm like, you got the original. He's like, yeah, but I can't do anything with the original. I can take this one home. I can so carry this was, one around. Suga. And then we're going to put it in a crate. So we're going to have the ornithomimid egg, Mimi. Then we're going to set it with um, ornithomimid claws. So they have, despite having teeth, no, no teeth, they have these really long hand claws. So we're going to go with probably Struthiomimus because it's such a cool hand claw. It's about this long. It's sharp. No one knows what they were doing with it. That's a story. 
I'll come back and we'll talk about just the bird. You're going to have to come back on for Dinosaurs Part 2. It's, it's already going to happen. I'm down. <laughs> so let's do this. We're going to then offer, because we like to have a lot of value for your money, The we have an Ovaraptor egg. So we have this really long egg. So Ovaraptors were smallish sized dinosaurs for the most part. There were some big ones. And they laid, they're almost like a kiwi. They laid giant eggs for their body size. And we have a cast of one. So we're going to have contrast at the, about the same time frame in Mongolia was this huge, long egg. And in the United States, from a different group of animals, it's a much smaller egg. So we think it'll be neat to compare and contrast the, the morphology of them. And then that we- really cool. We've, we've begun including QR codes that link to videos that I talk about this level of detail on the specimens you buy. So we're in the process. We have, what, 100 items. So it's taking a while. But, and, and I talk a lot, and then I have to edit them. So, uh, but, and, but I want to make sure you get to your earlier point. As great of scientific info as you can, that's from a paleontologist. I, my buddies laugh because it'll be 3 in the morning. I'll shoot them an email. Hey, what do you think of this? And then like, what's wrong with you? Why can't, can't you, why do you not know that? I said, well, because some, some 10 year old me would want to know. And if 10 year old me wants to know, I'm going to go find the answer. I'm going to try to get out in front of it. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I, the, the thing I took from this whole conversation though, is the, the odds of that kid finding that egg on that hoodoo, bringing it down, not destroying it, deciding to get to the, the, the odds are, are astronomical. The chain of custody right? is so unlikely to have. It's a trillion to one, trillions to one. So I'm just going to say this, and since Women's Month, it had there had to be a woman involved somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> just saying it. I'm throwing it out there. That's how that egg made it. Okay. Check, our, check the Instagram post tomorrow. We're putting up our uh, women's in science. So we have a cute dinosaur post. So That's we'll super have, cool. Uh, awesome. We, so, we try to celebrate. Uh, last year, we had speakers all throughout the month of the Women's Month, and uh, we're working on doing that as well. But like you said, there's always a lag from when you shoot it towards when it gets posted. It's <laughs> it's hard not to. Um, <laughs> so we kind of transitioned into paleontology. We've been going back all over the place, and I, I'm absolutely okay with this because there's, I, like I said, I love your guys' product, and honestly... I want that Allosaur claw right now. Oh my God. I saw that. And I was like, I want you. <laughs> Are you making a list? I, I am. I'm going to be, I, I oh, this is that, that this is a brand new dinosaur. Uh, the paper came out in November of last year, Lamana et al. in the Carnegie museum. This is from Argentina. It's a mega raptorid. So this is a hand claw and this thing, Allosaurus looks cool until you, Allosaurus needs to take a seat. Holy cow. That's back of the lawn, Allosaurus. Oh, so, pr pretty awesome. And so based on, at, so, so let me ask you this because, uh, Dinosaurus comparison as oh well. God, that's nuts. It's just, it's just dwarfed. And this animal is only 25 feet long. It's, uh, we don't know what mega raptors were doing, but we know whatever they're doing. It was with style and flair. Did, did they have an actual, did they have a foot claw? Or were they no. just like, oh, random story. Why is this called a Megaraptorid? Because when the Megaraptor, which is a real dinosaur, they found a claw of it, which is even larger than this one. And they assumed that it went on the foot. In fact, its species name means basically Lance foot. 
because it reminded them of a lance. It was so giant. Yeah. And so they found this claw. They assumed it went on the toe. And then 10 years later, they found an, another animal and they figured, oh, wait, this is on the hand. The toe claws were not like this. They were much smaller. So and the arms were long and it was clearly doing something with them. Now, when you see something this ridiculous, it makes you wonder, was it really killing animals with it? Or do we have a Therizinosaurus type situation where maybe it was reaching up and pulling plants down like a ground sloth? This, because you have something so outsized, the skulls are fairly small. I mean, they're sharp, they're eating meat. It's such a bizarre animal and we don't have anything complete. We have scraps, they're in Japan, they're in Thailand, they're in Argentina. So they're down in the Gondwanan side of the world in the late Cretaceous and we, and we don't have any kind of reasonably complete skeleton. So all we have are wild guesses. Could it but be like gripping and rolling scavenger style where it's grabbing the meat and pulling it away? Possibly that too. That's another, I hadn't considered that one. That's another possibility. Yay, I, was I came up with an idea. Look at you. Look at you. <laughs> you get a gold that's, star. That's what I love about paleo is you just propose something that's now testable. So now we can go and try to find extant taxa that might do this or recently extinct taxa. Granted, they're most likely mammals. Is it done anywhere? And if not, well, what's the plausibility that it could be done? And that's why children and, and students, they can come in, they can join part of their museums and their lab. Every lab I've ever been in, uh, research gets done. We bring, in the, we bring them in because that, that enthusiasm, that fire. Now, do they become paleontologists? Some of them, Sterling Nesbitt was at Arizona Museum and he's now the hot paleontologist of the day. He's amazing. But if they don't, they go into other fields of steam. So they'll spin off and they'll, they'll, they'll find another, they'll be an engineer, they'll be a mathematician. But that whole questioning of the specimens and, and asking themselves, you know, I read about this, but does the bone back it up? So we always challenge, we always tell them challenge and question everything. Don't just assume because a guy with letters before or after his name said it means it's true. And so many discoveries come from novel ideas from someone who isn't tainted per se, who has an open way of viewing the world that allows new ideas to matriculate in a much better fashion. That's so cool. You're so cool. Will you be awesome. my dad? <laughs> Honorary dad. <laughs> right. Uh, so I, I do have some questions and I want to ask these because people are asking me to ask these questions and they want to know. Um, so let's kind of get some of them here. Let's, let's pick out some good ones. Um, let's, let's go with, actually, let's start with this one, because I think this is a really fun one to start with. Um, somebody wanted to know, they wanted to know how accurate are the ideas of what we think dinosaurs look like to how, how plausible is it? So I, I always tell people, if you want to make them pink and polka dots, go for it. We'll never know. I mean, we'll have some some directional ideas, but we won't know for sure. And every time you look around in nature, you find something that you wouldn't expect. Um, if you've ever had the pleasure of being terrified by a Bombardier turtle or a, a frog, it's this little obscure frog that jumps up and its bottom is this bright orange and black and it makes you startled and then it runs away. You would have never anticipated it. So that being said, this animal behind me is a great example of science evolving and advancing. If you remember the early Jurassic Park movies, these, these critters lacked feathers. And they lacked feathers because back then, dinosaurs and birds, the link had been proposed 
Heck, it had been proposed by Darwin's bulldog, Charles Huxley, way back when suggested it. And then fast forward, Ostrom with Deinonychus in 69, Bacher, his student, talked about it, but it hadn't caught on with the mainstream. There was a lot of resistance. So when the first Jurassic Park was made, all of their dromaeosaurids, what we call raptors, the paleontologists, all the raptors, they were in leather. And then what color? Well, they made them fairly drab, but they could have picked any real color. What we do know is uh, predatory birds don't tend to have blues or reds. Those come from the diet. They tend to be browns. So a brown or a green uh, is, is a more likely color, but that doesn't mean they weren't bright red. It's hard to say. Look at a cassowary neck. It's blue. Now, it's blue from the diet of the food in large part, but I digress. So the question was, how accurate are they? Science, paleontology, I love because it's always evolving. So this animal went from having no feathers to they found an ulna, an arm bone in Mongolia that has some had little dots. And when you put it under the microscope, the dots were quill knobs. And if you look on my blog, I occasionally write blogs to answer someone's question. I'll write 2000 word. So uh, go check it out. Um, but there's I no have, limit there. Correct. It's my site. <laughs> so on the blog, I have the pictures of the quill knobs as well as of the turkey vulture that they show, Cathartes, the genus, right above it. It's very clear that there's, there's at least quill knobs on the arm. And then the Chinese jihol fauna was discovered. And now you start finding all these feathered uh, dromaeosaurs like Microraptor. I was looking at Microraptor today. It's got feathers on its arms, on its legs, on its tail, on its neck, clearly feathers, can't be anything else. Then you have these crazy faunas like uh, Bipausaurus and Euteranus that were found with feathers. And they're larger animals, um, which as a random aside, artists then took and feathered every dinosaur, feathered T-Rexes. But that bothers me because if you look at Spinosaurus, Robachysaurus, and Aranosaurus, those are three dinosaurs that lived at the same place at the same time, and all three had sails. Uh, something climatically was driving some fertile reason to have those tall backs. I think that this particular place in China, this fact that these taxa all had feathers, but it, you only find it there in that area, makes me wonder if there wasn't something else going on environmentally that, that made it advantageous. But they're all hypotheses. So color, we have found some melanosomes. So we know where some of them had black on them. And we found other kinds of, of color proteins or color molecules that let us know that it was a white color. So we know at least in one dinosaur it had a black and white pattern. And we've had a couple other animals where we found hints of color. And so it's possible we're gonna find a crazy specimen that has great color someday in it, but that'll be for one specimen at that point in time. Wasn't there a herbivore that that was, I wanna say it was Cetacosaur, but I'm not yep. quite, yep. it was. I was gonna, so Cetacosaurus, ah, go. the cloacal vent. So they found the Cetacosaurus and uh, in fact, we're working on a top secret project with that thing. Fossil Crates has a museum. We, we also offer a museum exhibit. So if any of you out there want a, a traveling museum exhibit, let us know. We've got 10 and uh, they're really awesome. And now we're moving into technology into some of them. Different story. That's for the third version of this conversation. But this attack source in question, when, uh, when, they, when they started looking at it, they found all kinds of, of uh, skin impression but it had a lot of color molecules. And what it showed was the vent, the where it excreted waste had a, a different coloration than the areas around it. Now, what those colors were, it 
It's impossible to say. So you're sure. telling me it had like the pink cat butt. It could have been like an issue of velocity. I was thinking it's like neon orange or something. I don't know. It, it, um, it was definitely different, but then that's also where they make babies. So they use the same orifice to do everything. So if you really want to make sure that they hit the landing spot, then you better make it big. <laughs> like a bullseye. Um, um, so I, I think one of the things that we're kind of leaning to in this question too was, uh, in, and I saw this not too long ago, is talking about like, muscle structure so case in point looking at like the body the skeleton of a penguin versus what it looks like it how accurate are you got you guys with oh, that great great point so now the other great thing is there is a huge paleontology has always had some of the best anatomists in fact there's no pale, well up until recently there was no paleontology degree the majority of your dinosaur paleontologists were either anatomists or geologists that's just what they did. And the geologist side told you all about the terrain, the environment, the rocks. The anatomist would look at the bone and it would tell you that this big tubercle is huge. And the only time you get bone pulled is when something's attaching to it. So then they'll go back and look at modern animals and what, what muscles pull that out. And so when we look at skeletons, to your point, a lot of this basic skeletal knowledge of muscle attachments, we can guess. Mm -hmm. However, there's lots of animals that have humps. You would never necessarily guess that, that some of those giant humped mammals, just looking at their backbones, had these crazy humps. And that's where it's hard to say. We, we don't know. Unless you have the skin outline, it, it's no way to know for sure. Uh, so most paleontologists tend to be on the conservative side when it comes to drawing their dinosaurs because nature tends to be conservative. So they're going to be statistically right across their career more often by going off of the general interpretation. Plus, you can make mistakes and you can interpret something that later on turns out to not be there. Appalachiosaurus, another dinosaur on the wrong side of the ocean, in my opinion, I'm born and raised in Arizona, <laughs> is a tyrannosaur cousin. And when it was found, it was thought to have these long arms. Well, <laughs> enter uh, an anatomist that looked at the long arms, a geologist that described it and he realized that's not an arm that's part of the pelvis so the arm shrunk <laughs> by removing the radius and putting it in the pelvis where it goes the arm went back to what you'd expect it to be now the guy who makes who sells the cast has a great sense of humor and lets you order it short or long-armed uh, well, that's hilarious um so let's go on to some other ones here because we've only answered one question <laughs> we're an hour into the episode this is i love this stuff this is what i love um let's go here uh what was the most common type of dinosaur so type of dinosaur depends on how you're defining common is it the most number of species we've recognized is it the most number of individuals of a species so a monotypic species that is like a like a zebra or a wildebeest there's a million wildebeests on the plains but there's all but there's only one kind of wildebeest so I'm going to say that in the Jurassic, it's the Camarasaurus or Camarasaurus. I'll alternate my pronunciation of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a sauropod. It's a long neck dinosaur. We find them pretty much everywhere and we find lots of them. Uh, so from the plant eating side in the Jurassic, it would be a, a sauropod of some sort would be the most numerous or most common that we're going to find. But that's also partially biased by the fact that they're big animals. So we're going to find more likely to be preserved. So you're going to have automatically, we're not going to know what lives in mountains or what kind of animals live in jungles because there's no preservation. And tiny animals tend to not be preserved as often. In the Cretaceous, 
I'm going to say that it was probably was going to be either the duckbills or a ceratopsians, just as a type of dinosaur. We have entire herds of ceratopsians that seemingly died from a flash flood. So we know lots about ceratopsians in the in the Canada and Montana and the Cretaceous because it was on the shores of the Western Interior Seaway, and it looks like in a couple of different times a thousand were killed at once. And we see this in Africa today in a giant storm, a huge wall of water will come down, especially poorly timed as something's crossing and bury them. Or a volcanic event will happen and the, and the ash will come over and the smoke and it'll kill off a herd of duckbills. So we know they live in herds. We have thousands of them, but we also have roughly 500 triceratops skulls that have been found. So there's another indication that there's a lot of ceratopsians out there. Yeah. Part x of that question is <laughs> the answer is the animals i'm talking about now are 66 million years old the jurassic was 140 million years old. so 150 million years old so now you have we're actually closer to my iphone is closer to t-rex than t-rex is the stegosaurus that's so crazy to that's think about so it that way insane. and just so our listeners understand these these events that happened to dinosaurs still happen today i I'm, I don't know exactly where it happened, but I remember there was a species or there was a huge herd of uh, deer or elk that w- almost went extinct because of a lightning storm. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It was crazy. Like they they just found them all dead and they couldn't figure out what happened. And it was just like they happened to all be in close area. And there was a mass amount of lightning that had struck the ground and damn near took them out completely. It just That's recently up. A bunch of elephants turned up dead in southern Africa. I want to say Botswana. And um, originally it was thought it was, po- it was like a hun- it was 50 to 100. It was a crazy amount. Not good for them. Yeah. Uh, but then as they got on the ground, it turns out that they died from uh, a botulism, basically. Some parasites, some, some really? water killed that them all off. crazy. So, yeah. They, they, That's so kind of terrifying. Event. Yeah. And then if you look at, you can have a tsunami. What happens if you live on an island and a tsunami happens? Oh, yeah. So I want to get this question in because I think this is a very important question. We need to talk about the most accurate uh, dinosaur movie in all of history, Jurassic Park. Um, (laughs) I I was trying to get your eye to twitch just a little bit at that. (laughs) I'm comfortable with it Um, because I got my popcorn out. Okay. (laughs) They did a great job on Brachiosaurus. That's all I cared about. That's all you cared about. The The, the sneezing was they sneeze and everything was perfect. Well, I don't know about the sneeze. I, I think that based on avian uh, morphology, that you don't see birds do not have the breath come in and out. It just flows through. Oh, I never, man, you ruined that whole scene for me. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, no, I, everybody knows Hollywood uh, gets tons of things wrong. They, they just like, it's Hollywood. We have to accept for what it is. Um, are paleontologists able to enjoy movies like Jurassic Park? Like how does it make it your de- eye twitch? It depends on how pedantic they are. Uh, some, some of my friends cannot. They are incapable of even uttering those words in combination. They can say <laughs> dinosaurs, they can say the words separate, but not together. So uh, yes, many struggle with it. Others look at it as their opportunity to shine because they're the expert and they are cannot wait to tell you all the mistakes that are made across all the movies. Everything that's wrong. <laughs> they're, because they're just Debbie Downers. Now I look at it as, hey, Hollywood took a story, a great novel. They made it into a visual feast 
and they have created now two generations of of dinosaur fans and those dinosaur fans some of the brightest people i know become paleontologists because there you can do you have to be a polymath almost in this field or or you need a giant rolodex little kids a rolodex is what your <laughs> iphone contact is of um you need to be able to pull out specialists in all different areas because it's such a vast field. I think Jurassic Park has done so much good to paleo overall because it's brought, it's the thought of technology, of engineers, of computer scientists, of all kinds of disciplines working together. So I don't have any issue with it. Yes, there's some really, uh, I teared up at the last movie because the Brachiosaurs were on the oh island. Oh my God, the long like six hour scene of it dying. Isn't yeah, that, that the worst? Can we not? Can we yeah. not? Yeah, no. terrible. So well, We don't need to talk about that one. <laughs> after that, I'm going to keep my mouth shut because the rest of the movie... Yeah, you know, I didn't think it was a good move. That's literally my. I'm excited about the final one. I, I you know, yes. I have low expectations because it is, you know, the trilogies. The third is never great. Like I'll forgive you for a bad sequel. Return Listen of the Jedi. Oh my god. Okay. First off, there's always an exception. There's always an exception, and the Rancor is one of my favorite aliens and of all the movies. So th- don't don't even get it in Jabba. Come on, let's let's be realistic here. But let's talk about the trash pandas. There was such a big fit about them when they came out with that movie. Everybody was was crapping on the Ewoks. So it took my to my generation getting here to finally be socially accepting Ewoks as a species. So don't you dare give me that one, Miss Sarah. <clears throat> now I that I got on my soapbox, I know. <laughs> My movie, How do you forget about the Ewoks? Because my movie experience stops as soon as Boba is in the Sarlacc pit. I'm done. <laughs> and then they went and made some Boba story that just plotted on riding the Bantha. Uh, it's like a Matthew McConaughey commercial. Now listen here, Dr. <laughs> <Yes>. Curtis. <laughs> Mrs. Jones is about to come out. Yes, we're gonna have a problem. <laughs> yeah. Don't even start talking about I the enjoyed, motorcycles, okay? I, I enjoyed how they back you know they filled out the backstory of the Tuscan Raiders. I really enjoyed it. But why is it if a train goes by and you have to climb up on top of a hill to get shot that you hear the train coming, stay down under the hill, the train goes by, no problems. I was really perplexed, and then I remember they're sand people, they're not the brightest. There you go. See, you, <laughs> you answered your own question. Um, since we're talking about Jurassic Park, though, I, I, I do want to ask this question. This one wasn't asked, but I want to know. What is the likelihood, you know, sh- shoot my dreams in the, the, the heart right here. What is the likelihood of us ever actually cloning a dinosaur? <laughs> so, again, pedantically, birds are dinosaurs. So if you clone a bird, you've done it. Part two, there is work that's, that has gone on in genetic labs to, to reverse engineer a chicken. So as you- I have, at, I've read the book. I saw okay. that, yes. So you, as it comes out, you can take parts pieces. But a couple of items. Since we don't know what a dinosaur really acted like, how would we know that we nailed it? And True. just like my same question to people I, who want to clone the woolly rhinoceros, who's going to teach it how to be a woolly rhinoceros? You don't know. <laughs> so there's a whole lot of, of ethical concerns, unless you just want to put it in a zoo. And then if you do that, please shut down its higher order thinking, and then I'm fine with it. But um, the, the, Or make it robotic. But to answer your question, I don't think we'll ever clone a dinosaur unless we're able to somehow miraculously 
uh, I've learned don't bet don't bet against Mother Nature to get <laughs> some kind of DNA strand from 66 million years ago that's complete. And that's the challenge is time. It just degrades. It just sits on a shelf. Like even water goes bad if you leave it in the container mm-hmm. long enough. So 66 million years, it's a long time for DNA to not have degraded. And because it will have degraded, we have to make decisions just like in the Jurassic Park book. And we're going to have to insert other items on them. Please and- don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, we're, still de- no. we're still in the, the pandemic era. Yeah, we should probably not do that. This would be a bad time um, for that. A bunch of dudes did that. <laughs> there were no women involved. See, there's your problem. No, the leading bat researcher is a female. Are you sure? Hundred <laughs> uh, percent. So, this is a fun question too, and I I, I like this uh, because talking about troodons and how intelligent they were and everything, and how just impressive they were as a creature. Uh, there was that theory that they could have been the highest form of life. They could have been the most sentient. Humans may not have been where we are if it wasn't for a mass extinction. How true is this theory? So it's referencing Dale Russell's um, troodontid that becomes like this humanoid troodont. And he goes through and argues, if you look, the eyes are getting larger. So they would have continued uh, getting longer or larger. The hands were growing more and longer and more mobile. So he extrapolated 66 million years of uh, extinction-free life that what what would have happened he and they were very intelligent using the eq and not the emotional quotient that uh some people are said to have a very low score on if they're men but the encephalization (laughs) quotient which is a way of taking the brain volume and discerning uh our relative levels of intelligence based on that number and the troodon had one of the largest brain case eqs out there so if you extrapolated that forward so that's where it all comes from um but the only issue I have with it is there's a hint of anthropomorphism in it. It's the it, presuming that we're the ultimate. It almost goes back, and, and I knew Dale. He wouldn't, he wouldn't like me saying this, but it harkens back to the great chain of being, where being a big-headed, bipedal, very able to manipulate items is the best. And I would say that it wouldn't have happened. If anything, the, the animals evolved to be ideal in the environment they're in. And so if you look at the environment would have had to have not changed much at all or had some slight changes for his scenario to work. But if you don't have the impact, and I've thought a lot about what happens if you don't have the impact, continents still move around. Uh, You still have the poles flood with ice. You have the poles melt. You have these other, you have gigantic volcanic events. And all of those, all it takes is the right animal to die and the whole lineage is gone or the, or the cool genes. I, I, you can be the absolute best fish in the pool, but when the water drives up, it's the thing that had the lungs that in the lobe fence that was able to get lucky and find another pool and keep on living. We're this great unbroken chain of DNA that just wants to, re, to replicate itself. So I like the ideas. They're fun to talk about. But I don't, I don't see it happening. They didn't need intelligence. Humans. So I spent a couple months in Africa looking for dinosaurs in game parks. We lose to every animal on the African plains. Every <laughs> single animal wins. Straight up terrifyingly wins. If we don't come up with a way to figure out how to use tools, these are not great when you throw down against a hyena. 
or a, a savanna monitor or any serpent or any insect. <laughs> Their bees are not Africanized killer bees like we have in Arizona. They are killer bees. They drop the Africanized portion. There's no, we don't have a chance. So primates were in a really bad spot. And luckily our brains allowed us to come up with the ability to use these items. Dinosaurs didn't necessarily need it. If you're T-Rex, you're the apex predator, what do you fear? If you're the smaller velociraptors, I would assume you're just going to get better and better eating your prey until all the prey is gone. Look at Megalodon, the great Ototus Megalodon, the shark. Whales did not achieve the size they reached today until Megalodon went extinct. Shut it up. Did it. it did a great job because it ate whales. It bit off the fins. It bit off the tail. It would rip through and crunch through and bite out the heart and come up from underneath. But the whales were smaller. The whales were smaller than the Megalodon most of the time. And Megalodon was this ultimate predator that ate the biggest animals around at the time. But then the poles started freezing up. It, things started getting colder. The whales followed their food. They headed north and south. The water was too cold for Megalodon. And as a result, Megalodon didn't make it. Plus, it had this other pesky creature that had shown up called the great white shark that was nimbler, faster. So if you're Megalodon, you're living with Allodesmus, an eight-foot-long sea lion. That's pretty cool. You can eat those, but they're hard to catch. You're really big. Great white sharks, that's like the perfect size for them. So when the big prey went away, it wasn't able to evolve fast enough to shrink back down in size to then expand back out later. That's so fascinating. That is super interesting. <laughs> that's, I, it's, it's, it's true, though, and <clears throat> that's, it's interesting to see that. Uh, it's, how about this, though? Uh, you know, I know we've kept you for a while and this is, I want to keep you more truly, truly do. Cause this is absolutely fascinating. Sure. Oh yeah. Uh, so let's, let's kind of wrap this up. Uh, we'll do the, what this is, you know what, this was a question we're going to wrap up on because I can't believe I haven't asked you this. What is your favorite prehistoric animal? <laughs> so as a father with two kids, I, what's your favorite kid? You, you, both. It's always <laughs> the same. And, and I have to say that my favorite prehistoric animals uh, on one level are all of them. I just have this fascination. I, I almost think that I was a failed novelist. So I take, instead of writing an entire book, I'll take a bone and tell a story off of a couple elements. So a, a level above haiku, but not mm -hmm. much. Uh, and I, I never really liked math. So plus or minus 3 million years. Sweet. That's my kind of number. Close count. But favorite-wise, I study the long necks, long tail, the sauropods. Mm -hmm. And Supersaurus is an animal that I keep coming back to. We just published in November. It's the longest dinosaur that's ever been discovered. It's absolutely ridiculous in size. It's, it's mind-blowing. It's Brobdenagian proportions. It's, it's incredible. I went to Argentina and looked at Argentinosaurus back in the 90s, another unbelievably gigantic animal. But I got to say, some of my favorite animals – are uh, animals uh, like some mammals such as they're living like giant anteaters because they don't have teeth and when you're in mammalogy class they make you write a paper on mammals and i chose the giant anteaters because i didn't want to have to study teeth ridges and no <laughs> one thought it was funny they said unacceptable so i said all right i got you i, I hear what you're saying toothed whales the killer whale the teeth are the same front to back simple that also was not acceptable but um, from a prehistoric creature standpoint, I find they're so fascinating. So I can't say just one. I know it's a cop-out. 
they're all really cool and neat, but dinosaurs are the ones that I gravitate towards. And within the dinosaurs, I love the sauropods. Okay, how about this? Is there um, a specific period you're most fond of when it comes to? Even even that is tough. Uh, Late Jurassic is where all my research is done. And then the early Cretaceous crossover there's a hiatus all the sauropods died we had we have brachiosaurus apatosaurus camerasaurus diplodocus we've got we got all these sauropods such great diversity and then they're all gone and no sauropods really come back i mean some some a couple make it across you've got moabasaurus menenosaurus these kind of much smaller generic sauropods and then the titanosaurs are having a field day down in the cretaceous in south america but I would say my heart, because my very first dinosaur digs where I got to do real science was in the late Jurassic, Morris information. In fact, in a couple of weeks, uh, middle of April, I'm down in Southern Utah and we're, we've got a brachiosaurus that we're pulling out of the ground. Fun. Very cool. So Dr. Brian, where can people find you? So fossilcrates.com. I've got a blog. Uh, my Instagram posts, it's at fossilcrates. The and it's mirrored on Facebook at Fossil Crates or some such. I don't know. Just type in Fossil Crates, we pull up. Uh, there's occasional Twitter posts, but they're few and far between. Uh, LinkedIn, because I like to tweak the corporate America, we post LinkedIn stuff on dinosaurs, which I find utterly delightful. And uh, I'm amused by it. I get you can't believe how many people say, We love your post. It's, it's not HR forever and how to avoid being sued or the best way to use drugs in the workplace with THC being legal. We write your any. resume. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> connect, and I get people always connecting. And I ask, I say the same thing to them Hey, so you're interested in buying some fossil crates to help your sales team as, as rewards for hitting their goals. And then they just ghost me. So I have a can. <laughs> But so Twitter, LinkedIn, we were on Pinterest. We put pins up, but really, if you want to get the coolest stuff, Instagram or Facebook and uh, the website itself, that's. And, that's- de- and definitely come and checking you guys out. And definitely like as a member, I am, I, I, I loved it. I, I joined it to definitely come to the virtual meetings to come talk to the paleontologists and come talk to you guys and fanboy out. Um, and you were able to show me the virtual museum, which was absolutely amazing. And we didn't uh, even talk about that. No, here. we did. There, there's so much. Again, part two, part three, you let me know we're, we're down. Um, but yes, I thank you so much for being on here. Uh, truly amazing. We didn't get through half the questions and I love that. Uh, but I, I definitely want to wrap this up because I think this is a perfect spot to wrap it up. Um, so let's go ahead and wrap this up. As always, please like, subscribe, and follow us wherever you listen to us on podcasts. And if you are listening to us on Apple, please remember to rate and review. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, so please like and follow us at DNA Pod and on Twitter at Nerd DNA Pod. And on our webpage, uh, just a little heads up, it is under construction right now, so I apologize for the dust at nerddnapod.com. Uh, I have been joined tonight by the wonderful, the amazing, the impeccable, the adoring, and the nerding out friend of mine, Miss Sarah Jones, as well as the just the, the I, I don't even know how to compliment you because you're, it's just been it's been a blast having truly, truly has. And I, I know everybody is geeking dinosaur out. And they're going to be Googling their favorite dinosaurs. Uh, so we couldn't have done this without you. Dr. Brian Curtis, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you both so much. It's been an honor and a privilege to hang out with you both and uh, listen to my long soliloquies. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I absolutely enjoyed it. Thank you and good night.